Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. So much to talk about today on the show. Everything from multiple lawsuits in the state of California against Kaizen Permanente with regard to transitioning children. I'll share with you the latest story about a 12-year-old girl who was rapidly transitioned by physicians at Kaiser Permanente in California. We'll talk about that a little later on. This is on the heels of another lawsuit. It's a very similar situation. We actually interviewed Chloe Cole where she shared her story here on Trending. So we'll talk about that today. I'll also link to that episode. So stay with me later today. We're also going to talk about eating disorders today. I think it's such a relevant topic as we live in a culture struggling with identity, uh, identity, self-esteem. It's a consistent sound in our culture, whether it's someone struggling with gender, someone struggling with uh, eating disorder, this a fight for meaning and purpose. So we're going to be joined in just a few minutes by Emily Stimson Chapman to discuss. Also, we're taking your questions, numbers 888-914-9149, and a message of hope. If you didn't catch the show yesterday with Jim Caviezel, the actor who played Jesus and the passion of the Christ. Uh, he joined me here on Trending yesterday to talk about his latest film. So I hope you'll catch the podcast. We'll post the link. We've posted links to it on social media where you can go and listen now. Uh, but something really important we discussed with Jim Caviezel was how trying some of these topics that we're talking about sex trafficking and how that's something he's really working on at this time, especially with a new film coming out. And I was really thinking about how necessary it is to have that resounding understanding of hope. That hope is one of the three theological virtues. And without God, we don't have it. And that's how we can confront the darkness in the culture. It's through Jesus Christ and only with Jesus Christ. So if you feel yourself a little bogged down, heavy by some of what's happening in the culture of the world, maybe within your own personal life, have the hope of Christ within you. We'll talk about that later on today. You're listening to Trending with Timory. We're talking about identity crisis and overcoming an eating disorder. I think the culture tends to really, I think, push forward this identity crisis. I think it's at the end of the day a search for understanding of our own meaning, purpose, value, and understanding our own self-esteem. I think it's all related with everything from gender to the family breakdown of how in the midst of a broken world do we find all of this for ourselves and for others. So joining me today to discuss is Emily Stimson Chapman. She's a Catholic author, a mother of three adopted children and a wife, of course. And Emily, I'm looking forward to diving into this. You're a wife and a mother of three adopted babies, and I know that you have struggled in the past with an eating disorder. Can you share with me a little bit about that journey? Oh, we're connecting to Emily right now in just a moment. I think we lost her. I'm looking forward to talking to Emily about this, and she has such an incredible story. And it's neat because 
years later after struggling with the eating disorder as she herself battled fertility and infertility and has adopted three children and i think that in pondering just emily's story how significant it is that we have so many challenges that we go through with time and many can pull us down and yet we have to find our identity within christ and when that occurs it will prepare us for the other uh, things that we will face in our lives and so i know we've got emily back with us emily i was asking you if you could kick off was sharing with us a little bit about your experience with an eating disorder. When did it all start and what was the cause of it for you? Yeah, so I was 19, Timory, and I was in college. Uh, and it uh, eating disorders are not simple things. Um, I was I struggled with anorexia for six years, a um, little bit with compulsive exercising, but really it was anorex- anorexia for six years. And there were so many things that fed into it. Um, there was a misunderstanding of what it meant to be a woman. Like I felt like because I was smart and strong and had all sorts of opinions that I wasn't feminine enough. And so I needed to be small and delicate and that if I were, maybe no one would notice the, you know, opinions um, didn't work. I struggled with um, not understanding the value of my body, like seeing it as a problem to control and not a gift to care for. But most of all, I struggled with control like feeling like I needed to control the world and control control everything in my life, which I couldn't. And so I took that out on my body. Um, and, you know, I also just, I, I didn't value myself. I hated myself. I wanted to erase myself. And starving myself was, for me, the easiest way to just slowly diminish who I was until I no longer existed. What you just said, I think, is very significant. The crossover, not just within the the challenge of an eating disorder, but also it reminds me of so much of what we hear in the gender crisis today, where there's that discontentedness and wanting to not be seen for what your body and who you actually are, but to, as you said, erase myself. Can you talk a little bit more about that? No, I think the comparison is really good. I mean, when I was in college, I think like 20% of the girls on my campus struggled with some form of eating disorder. It was a rampant problem. And if you go to college campuses or high schools now, you see young girls who are really struggling with with gender identity, whatever that means. You know, they're uncomfortable with who they are. They're uncomfortable with their bodies. They're uncomfortable with life. They're struggling. Mm-hmm. They're sad. Mm-hmm. They don't find meaning. They don't know how to find meaning in their in existence properly. Um, and so just like, for me, I found a way to deal with that through an eating disorder. I think a lot of young women are finding ways to deal with their emotional and spiritual pain through, you know, sort of embracing the transgender ideology. Mm-hmm. But it's never simple. You know, it's never a simple thing. And I think one of the reasons why there's such high, it's eating disorders are very difficult to cure. Um, the number of people who relapse into an eating disorder after leaving treatment is, you know, through the roof. When I was in treatment, I would always hear that it was incurable and no secular, Mm. no secular source was able to help me. It was really only coming back into the Catholic church and understanding the Eucharist and understanding who I was in God's eyes that brought me healing that has lasted for over two decades now. And I think you'll see the same thing with the gender, with the gender crisis. The world can't solve that problem. Only Mm. Jesus can. Amen. Can you talk a little bit more about what helped you in healing? Was it wasn't therapy? It sounds like it wasn't, you know, a new type of <laughs> diet that was nourishing. What was it specifically? If you could break it down, part of that journey for you and that coming into that greater understanding and appreciation for yourself, where you found meaning and purpose. 
Sure. I mean, it's it was a multi-phase thing. I think the most important thing for me was um, the Eucharist. And I remember one day I'd gone to daily Mass and I'd been reading for months and I'd come back into the church after six years away and I was watching. Oh, I think we lost her for a moment there. Well, she'll be right back with us. We're having a little challenge with audio. Uh, I love what she said, though, connecting how she could not come out of that hole. That hole that is often for many people a point of despair. This is just a part of who I am in trying, as she said, to erase myself with an eating disorder that she could only do that. It wasn't through any type of therapy or other guidance. This is why the world often says that eating disorders are not curable. It's because at the core, it's a search for meaning, purpose, value, and self-esteem that is all discovered in God. And I appreciate the connection that Emily's also making here as we're talking about the connection to gender ideology. Today, not as many people are presenting themselves with eating disorders in the same way. It actually usually comes as a comorbidity with people who are struggling with gender dysphoria. That it's a way, it's a means of coping with this disorientation of who I am as a human being. It's seen in young children, it's seen in teenagers, it's seen in young adults. And at the heart of it is this disconnection from God alone. That's what it is at the end of the day. I'm going to share with you a little bit about a lawsuit in California against Kaiser Permanente that transitioned a 12-year-old girl. And what I was flabbergasted by in this story, like many of the stories that are coming out right now with parents who are suing against the different medical uh, groups who are transitioning their children is because parents went and said, we don't know what to do. Help us figure this out. And they're being ushered into a transition uh, in terms of culture, in terms of name, uh, puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, all of that, including surgery. But what I really see resonating is that parents are saying, we don't know what to do, so we're turning to professionals. When we don't know what to do in life, yes, professionals are great, but if they don't know Jesus Christ, there's a strong chance that in trying to create a problem, they try to become the creator. And we can't let that happen. I'll say that again because I think it's very important. In an attempt to create a problem, they try to become the creator. And that's the challenge that you can only find that experience of meaning, purpose, healing, self-esteem when you discover your healing in Jesus Christ. So Emily's back with us. Emily, let's talk about that. You were saying that the Eucharist was a fundamental part of your healing and something that many people say isn't something that people recover from. Can you share with us a little bit about that multifaceted journey of healing and coming out of that eating disorder? Yeah, I'm not sure when I lost you because I could keep hearing you. But I was saying that um, I was coming back from communion one day and I had the thought that the most intimate communion I had with God was that I ate him. You know, that the thing I had been so afraid of for so many years and avoiding and seeing as this terrifying thing, food, God was actually using to give himself to me. Like he had created food. He was nourishing me with his body in the Eucharist. And that just forced me to rethink all of my attitudes towards food. Um, then there was the theology of the body and reading John Paul II's words and really coming to understand that my body was a gift and that the proper way to respond to it was with care and not with control. Like I didn't need to punish my body. I didn't need to worship my body. I needed to care for my body. Uh, and then through the years, like, so those two things made a huge difference, but then just the slow deepening of, 
understanding of God's love for me and that his love for me was not based upon um, what I did or how I performed or how perfect my life was, but just me. Like he loved me as I was. He loved all of the things that made me unique, that made me quirky, that, you know, I was one of his masterpieces. And so the more I came to understand that, the less I felt the desire to control and perform and be perfect in both body and soul. And yeah, just, just the lived experience of grace made such a difference for me. That's Emily Simpson Chapman. She's a Catholic author, Catholic mother, mother of three adopted children as well. We're talking about eating disorders. It sounds like in your answer in discovering yourself in peace with your body in the midst of that eating disorder in Christ, that it wasn't about food and it wasn't about how you look, but it was about understanding your identity in God. That's exactly it. You know, eating disorders are coping mechanisms. An eating disorder is a symptom of a deeper problem. A gender identity issue is a symptom of a deeper problem. Mm -hmm. And you're only going to find healing when you identify that deeper problem and start treating that. And if you treat that, the symptoms, however it's manifesting, will slowly start to fade away. I'm going to be talking a little later on. I mentioned this a moment ago about a current lawsuit, another lawsuit in California against Kaiser Permanente of a 12-year-old girl who she presents to her parents say, and saying, hey, I think I'm a boy. And the parents don't know what to do. And they go to medical professionals. And the medical professionals usher her into puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, go through with bodily mutilation, what they call therapeutic surgery, cross-sex uh, surgery. Sections, you can't change a sex. And what's so striking to me, and I said this a moment ago, when we try to create a solution to any number of things in the culture, it could be, you know, crises within marriage, it could have to do with abortion, uh, it could have to do with, you know, wanting more women in the workforce, it could have to do with gender. When we try to create a solution, we try to become the, the creator very often. And we replace the creator. And at the end of the day, that's what we need for the answer, the solution, the guide, guiding framework for who we turn to when we need help. It's people who believe in Christ and will honor Christ within us. No, I think you're exactly right. And with both, you know, with both eating disorders and gender dysphoria, like it would never have helped me for someone to say when I was like a size zero and wasting away, yes, you are fat. Like you are totally fat. Like it would have been completely counterintuitive to my healing to indulge my, my disassociation from reality. And I think you can see the same thing with, with gender dysphoria. Like that's a symptom. It's a problem. We have to help the person heal from the problem, not, you know, indulge the disassociation from reality. It's not compassionate any more than it would be to have told me, Yes, you're completely fat. You should continue to not eat. I have a question for you as we're kind of connecting the both. It wasn't my initial intention, but as we're talking, about, I think it's so significant. And we're in this crisis where women are asking, what does it mean to be a woman? For you having come into, I imagine, a much different and deeper understanding of beauty, what does it mean to be a woman to you? What, what does beauty mean to you now? You know, John Paul II's teachings about the feminine genius were tremendously healing for me um, because the church's teachings are so expansive. You know, the church says that women are called to, to be who we are. You know, we're called to be mothers and always in soul, sometimes in body. And that means 
to encourage people and nurture people and see the beauty in people. And you can do that as a rocket scientist. You can do it as a stay-at-home mom. You can do it with a very, you know, meek, gentle personality. You can do it with a, a larger, you know, a little bit brasher personality. It's, it's such an, ex- there's so much room within the church's understanding of what it means to be a woman. And when you think about it at the end of your life, like nobody's like, oh, I wish I'd been less encouraging. I wish I'd been like less able to see the beauty and the gifts in another person. Like those are such beautiful, wonderful things to strive for. And they are deeply maternal. And so I think the more women can connect with the church's understanding of what it means to be a woman of with the feminine genius, the more room they will feel to be themselves and the less confined they'll feel by really false gender, by false sex stereotypes. Hmm. Talk to me a little bit about your book. Uh, You have a book that touches on eating disorders and food. It's called The Catholic Table. How does this help in that healing journey and deeper understanding of that God-given identity that is what cuts through these crises that we're seeing relating to self-esteem, meaning, value, and purpose today? You know, when I I started to write that book, it was just supposed to be the church's theology of the Eucharist and food and how that relates to um, relates to the body and relates to community and hospitality. But I realized as I was writing that book that I couldn't write that theology out without also telling my story and telling how I had struggled with those concepts and how the church's teachings of the Eucharist, of food, of hospitality, of the body, had brought me healing. So it ended up being both my story and, uh, you know, sort of exposition of the church's teachings on those things. So hopefully it helps people to connect, you know, their own struggles with the theology. It's very practical theology that way. That book's called The Catholic Table. We'll post a link to it on social media as well as in the episode notes for anyone who may be interested. You can find those at relevantradio.com forward slash trending later this evening or on the podcast wherever you catch your podcast. It's a reminder that God alone heals. He nourishes. He alone gives meaning, purpose, value, self-esteem. And when you live a Eucharistic life, that is the healing balm that we all need to battle it and face the darkness within ourselves and within the culture. Emily, thank you for joining me today on Trending. Be sure to pick up Emily Stimson Chapman's book, The Catholic Table. If you're interested, again, we post that on social media as well as in the episode notes for today's show. I'll be right back here on Trending. We're going to talk about hope a little later in the face of everything that we're confronting in the culture. And I'm taking your questions. Number is 888-914-9149. We didn't have time yesterday because we had more important conversations with Jim Caviezel here on Trending. Uh, But I do want to touch on the news from what happened at Dodger Stadium this past Friday. I'll be right back with you. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. If you have a question, number is 888-914-9149. I got a question. Should I get a divorce? And also, how do I choose a Catholic school for my kids? 
These are great questions. Maybe someone has asked you that question before. Great topic to be able to respond to. I do have some thoughts on it. I received an email from Richard. And by the way, if you ever want to send me an email, I'm happy to answer it on air. Just email me. Head over to relevantradio.com forward slash trending. You can contact me there. You can also give me a call. The number is 888-914-9149. We received an email from Richard. And the question really in many ways is, should I get a divorce? Should, should I separate from my wife? So I'm going to share with you a little bit about uh, Richard's story and what he said. He said, my wife has a very severe psychological issue, most prominent in disassociative identity disorder disorder, also known as multiple personality disorder. He said the diagnosis was not known to either of us when we married. He said the majority of her wants to stay in the marriage, but one of the strongest personalities wants out and is engaging in destructive behavior via an eating disorder. Wow, it's timely with what we were talking about just a little bit ago. I hope, Richard, if you didn't catch it, you'll go back and listen to the whole segment we just did on eating disorders. He said this eating disorder is so dangerous, it does have the potential to end her life as part of the personality disorder. He said, I do not want to give up on her, but does it become wrong to remain in a marriage where the marriage is causing the spouse to self-harm in a potentially fatal way? He said she has and is currently receiving professional help, but I'm also seeing the eating disorder increase in frequency and severity. Thank you and God bless. Oh my goodness, Richard, you have such a challenging situation ahead of you, and yet God triumphs in the face of darkness. And he is there in the midst of the greatest, the greatest sorrow. And we have to turn to him for the answers. Hands down, bar none. He's where we have to go. Getting professional help is fundamental and great. But we have to go to God first, to God during, and to God after in every single challenging experience we face in our lives. And I think God allows us, I know God allows us these crosses so that we can conform to him, to enter into that cruciform love for God first, for ourselves, and then for others. And so I really want to challenge you, find a deeper love of for God, yourself, and your spouse in this situation. So I'm just going to start hands down. There's no such thing as divorce, Catholic divorce. If you're married in the eyes of the church, you are married in the eyes of the church. Now we have declarations of nullity that are called within the church, often referred to as annulments. I like to refer to them as declarations of nullity because what that is, is it declares that there was never a marriage from the beginning. And so what, what that would mean is that at the time of getting married, there was something that was maybe being withheld, like information that was withheld, or someone was cheating at the time. They didn't have an intention to actually honor the marital sacrament or to, or even understood what the marital sacrament was. If they really didn't know what they were getting into, or if they were lying or dishonest to the spouse, that would mean the marriage was never valid. That's why we really, I think, clear language is an annulment, but a declaration of nullity, where your marriage is declared null from the beginning by the church. So that's I think a really important baseline. I know you mentioned, Richard, in your question is that this diagnosis uh, wasn't present before you got married, but didn't happen until much later. Uh, Here's the deal. Remember the vow. When we take our vows at the altar, one of those vows, part of it, is that we stay together. We stay faithful in sickness and in health. And often in sickness, there are a lot of statements such as, Yeah, but, but it hurts me to see them go through this. Yeah, but I would be happier somewhere else. Or even in the crisis of mental health issues. Yeah, but I think my spouse would be happier without me. 
But that's giving up on your spouse. That's not honoring what the church calls us to, to be faithful in sickness and in health. Now, if something was not disclosed and there you believe prayerfully and through guidance with a pastor uh, that you may, you know, have a situation where it may be valid that your marriage was not valid, then that's something to take up with a priest and to start go th- looking at discerning that process. There are plenty of people who say, hey, I don't think my marriage was valid from the beginning, but there are many people who stay in it. It can become a sacramental marriage. I think that's important and significant to mention because there is that heroic dimension of the healing of our Lord Jesus Christ in the sacrament, even when people bring their faults that can lead it to that side of marriage. Um, So I want to talk about fidelity and suffering, though, because Suffering is when often, as we've heard the statement before, when the when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Isn't that even a statement in in the Lion King? My daughter's watching a little bit of movies now, so I think I heard that recently, and I was thinking about how significant that line is. When things get difficult, we want to despair, we want to run, we want to shut other people out, we want to lash out at them, and your wife is struggling too, and you are. Uh, the object of her greatest love, but also often the greatest cross can be our spouse. And so discovering how we can remain faithful to that vow of in sickness and in health when things get difficult with mental health as well is important. That's when marriage counts the most. And I think right now the question is, if we're called to remain there in sickness and in health, what is the best way you can love your wife right now, Richard? Maybe, maybe, I'm not saying that is, maybe that is physical separation for a time. If you really do believe, you said that you believe that um, staying in the marriage, that the marriage is part of what's impacting her eating disorder. Well, why? Taking a deep dive into how that might be influencing and impacting that out of love for, out of honor for that vow of remaining faithful in sickness and in health. You owe that to her, but you also owe that to yourself in honor of that sacrament, that vow you took to her before God. And don't forget, we enter into sacramental marriages God provides the graces to do so. We don't provide the answers and the healing. I said this earlier, and what I said really is resonating with me right now. When we try to create a solution, we try to become the creator. We try to create suddenly the situation where we're no longer married. We try to solve the problem. We try to become the creator. That's a terrible place because that's only the place of God, and that's why we need to depend on him for our solutions. So what is the best way you can love your wife now? discern this. And as you're seeking help, whether it's psychological help, marital counseling, always discern who you're speaking to. They need to have a Christian worldview, a Catholic sacramental worldview on marriage so that they're properly guiding her, guiding you, and guiding you guys to healing, not destruction in this challenging circumstance. So that you, whatever therapist and help you have are there to help you in rediscovering a greater depth of your marriage, even in the midst of this wound that is there. So I always recommend finding Catholic therapists, catholictherapist.com. You know, finding one that can work with your insurance as well. You can find them. I just, you have to do some digging, catholictherapist.com. It's fundamental. But I kept thinking, Richard, and pondering your question about this challenge, severe challenge in your marriage, of the words of St. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit and sacred scripture. I highly recommend you read the book 
of Ephesians chapter 5, where there in chapter 5, starting at verse 25, we read the call of husbands. The call of husbands is this, to die for your wife as Christ did for the church. And so how can you love her the best you can in being faithful in sickness and in health to your marital vows to your wife? And just think about the words here of St. Paul. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Even so, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So for no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it as Christ does the church. I think this line in here is very significant. Not just seeing I'm called to die to myself as Christ did for the church. This is the symbolism of what it means to be a husband married in the church, but also he says that husbands are to present his bride like Christ does the church to himself, spotless, without wrinkle, without any blemish. Think of your wife in this way. She's struggling through this mental disorder, this mental crisis. Think about presenting the purest form of herself to herself. Think about her in purity, spotless and without wrinkle, even in the face of this challenge, this mental challenge, that you see the purity and the innocence there, the good intention, the good intention of God in creating her and presenting her best to others, presenting her best to the Heavenly Father and helping her to discover the spotless version of herself, just as Jesus Christ does in the Sacrament of Reconciliation. And that's a reminder that we all need reconciliation. We need to go to confession to help us have that right perspective, to help us make a daily gift, a sacrificial gift of ourselves. Great question, uh, Richard. My prayers for you and for your marriage. And I know we have an army of prayer warriors praying for you right now as well. And so be assured, rest assured in that. You're listening to Trending with Timory again, praying, remembering God triumphs in the face of seemingly darkness, and we're called to have hope in him. Another question that came in, if you're just joining me, you're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. Sandy wrote me asking a question about how to choose a school, how to choose perhaps even a Catholic school. Her challenge is a very relevant challenge, and she's already confronting this with her first kid who's only two years old. Listen to this. She said, Sandy here, I'm a mom to two, one wonderful toddler boy about two years old. Should I recently have been looking at schools in my area just trying to plan for the future? Should I have been seriously shocked by how many of my local Catholic schools seem to have gone woke? She said, I'm in Albany, New York. And she mentions a couple of them and some of the challenges she saw. She said one of the local boys, only high schools, says twice that it's all about, on their website, inclusivity and social justice. She's highlighting this because it's a gray area when it comes to morality uh, if we aren't consistent with the church's teaching. And unfortunately, the ideology today of inclusivity and social justice are radically opposed to what the church teaches. So there's concern there, especially with how she's contacted the school. And she said, another Catholic school I looked at just started offering unisex uh, uniforms. And so she said, you know, there, she's concerned about this gender ideology and this constant desire to focus on everything as gender neutral. She said, I'm so stressed over if I'm going to have the 
have to move to find an appropriate school for my son? Should I really don't want him to end up in an inclusive, gender-confused, social justice advocate type of situation to become that because of his Catholic education? She said, what is a mom to do? I was just talking to a parent who currently has a young adult, very well-educated son who is okay with gender ideology and is in the face of having had a Catholic education is in many ways completely opposed to what the Catholic Church has taught. And so this is a significant question. Sandy's asking for input. And I think there's a three-prong approach to it. Uh, I think that we first have to remember that the education of our children, this is why I know Sandy's thinking about it, as Catholics, before we even have children, when we enter into marriage, we have to remember the proper end of marriage is the procreation, so having children, and educating them, the procreation and education of children. That's what the church has taught, that marriage is oriented toward children and educating them. And so we as parents are the primary educators of our children. That means what the child's taught, who the child is taught by, who they see, what they're exposed to, um, how they're formed, whether or not it's safe, all of this is important. I think it's also important to recognize that often I think people are saying, okay, well, you know, my kid can handle this situation. I form them well at home. I, in many ways, disagree with that argument. Children are children. They should be in a safe educational environment, and they should not have to feel like activists when they are meant to be in a phase of life where they are being formed, protected by their parents, because there's enough of the world out there where they will have to battle with what's happening. And I think that it's important that kids aren't thrown into the lion's den at an early age to have to battle what's happening in the culture because they need to be prepared for years. And that formation takes time. And to educate a child in many ways, it reminds me of the act of God. We know in Catholic theology about God when he creates the angels, the angels are radically different from us. And God gives the angels in an instance at the very beginning of their existence, full knowledge of everything. They have total understanding of God, who he is, and they have to make their choice then and there. And I bring that up. That's a whole area of theology that we could dive into on a different day. But I think of it like this. That's different for human beings. We have intellect and free will. We come to know something and freely choose it. It's the role of the parent, like God teaching the angels. Our role is we are made in the image and likeness of God. We are called to teach children, but that's a slow unraveling. We're not omnipotent like God is. We're not all knowing. We're not all present. And so as we educate children, it's a series of time. It's not like the angels who have that instant education on what is right and wrong, and they have the opportunity to choose and follow God's path or not. And so remember that very act of being the primary educator of your children is a part of living that identity is being made in God's image and likeness. So again, remember, you're the primary educator. So what does that mean? That doesn't necessarily mean you outsource your child's education. That means that you also know when to pull back the outsourcing of the education. So it sounds like your kid's only two, Sandy. My first child's only two as well, but I'm also thinking about these same exact topics as well. I can tell you, I think I have a three-pronged approach right now. I have my eye potentially on a private school one day uh, that I know also 
can change. You know, I want a classical education for my child. So what that Catholic school is doing now may not be the same later on. Uh, we have to be choosy. We have to hold them accountable. And we have to recognize when things change in the middle of the school year from year to year. Uh, there needs to be that constant communication. So I think private schools, uh, I'm hesitant, but I watch and might consider down the road. Uh, I think the other option is the charter school option. If you need funding for school, uh, you still need to be able to have ownership of your children's curriculum. And I think that's fundamental is knowing what your children are being taught. Because again, I don't believe in kind of creating this like mix, like, hey, let me correct this. I think that we need to teach the correct things to begin with. I, I think that's really, really important. I think there's a level of how much we should have to correct uh, with regard to teaching. So I was homeschooled. A fun fact. No wonder I talk about such awkward and intense things. <laughs> um, so I was homeschooled. And here's the deal. I will definitely probably most likely uh, homeschool the first few years at least. I never thought I'd say that per se because I was homeschooled and I saw it's challenging. It's challenging to teach your children. I remember years ago, I thought I would never have the patience to do that. I said many years ago, I used to always say I would never homeschool my kids. Now for years, I've been saying I would most likely homeschool my children. My intention at least a few years, first few years is to actually homeschool. And I think that it's important, I think first, especially because kids don't have to have 25 hours a day at school in the first years of their education. Most things can be done in a couple hours, and that gives them more freedom um, to play and enjoy life and not be in such a uh, cramped environment that is so separated from parents. I think that's really important to me, and I know some people might say, well, that's a luxury. Oh, no, I think it requires sacrifices. Some people cannot, but I think that it does require sacrifices. And the way things look in our world, I don't trust people to stay consistently with the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's revealed in psychology and science. I think there are too many negative influences. And so I think that for me, you know, seeing that three-pronged approach, keep an eye on private schools potentially for down the road, uh, consider potentially charter school for helping that supplementation where you're part at home, part not, or maybe all at home if you need that funding. But again, you have to own the curriculum. And then homeschooling. Again, for me, it'll at least be the first handful of years and I want to choose the curriculum. We are the primary educators of our children, and we need to hold to that. And if you're interested in learning more information about homeschooling, a great resource is Colby Academy. You can learn more about them if you head over to relevantradio.com forward slash Colby. That's relevantradio.com forward slash Colby. Colby is spelled K-O-L. B-E. And you might be surprised by all the resources are out there that you don't have to feel alone in homeschooling. Uh, it's really helpful to know that. And there are a lot of great Catholic homeschooling groups in your area. You kind of just have to start putting the ground, your ear to the ground. And I know in my area, there's some great Catholic homeschooling groups where you can even start to connect with those groups beforehand. Uh, even, you know, when your kid's closer to, you know, three or four years old, you know, maybe going to some of the meetings, getting to know the parents. Uh, I think that that's a great way. And I think so my three things, one, remember, we're the primary educators. Two, uh, we have to watch and start to prepare for what schools and constantly watch once the kids are in schools. And then three, uh, position yourself now with life choices. So in terms of money, time, skills, and mindset, preparing yourself if you're going to homeschool to be a bulldog as a parent, to go in and address things as they may need to be addressed if you choose a private school or Catholic school or charter, whatever that might be. So position yourself now, watch and prepare, always watch. And remember, at the end of the day, 
You can't just outsource your kid's education. You are the primary educator. And no matter where they go to school, they learn the most from the example that moms and dads set. So great question, Sandy. I'll be back here on Trending. Briefly, going to share with you about the Dodgers, what happened on Friday. My mom was actually there, along with a number of other people I know. And I'll share with you what happened, how the game went, and much more. So stay with me as we'll also discuss a second lawsuit in the state of California against Kaiser Permanente over a 12-year-old who was transitioned. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. tell you about this lawsuit in California over a 12-year-old in just a moment here because we all need to know about what's happening. It's great news that this is a lawsuit. I'm going to share with you. I know it's hard to talk about, uh, but first, the Dodgers. The Dodgers had their worst home shutout loss since nine, sorry, since 1898. 1898. Well over 100 years. Their worst loss. Okay, Why? Because on Friday, the morale of the Dodgers was very low. Now, the stadium wasn't quite empty, as some people are trying to say, but they had a much lower than average uh, rate of people there at the stadium. Uh, They had, I think, something like seven, at least 7,000 or so seats empty, which is a lot uh, for such a big stadium. And here's the deal. Why? You and I know there was a scandalous anti-Catholic group that was honored at Dodger Stadium that night. Uh, And here's the deal. They did it well before the game started. They honored this horrific, horrific group that is scandalous, disgusting, not kid-friendly. That's why, thank God, I think they did it way before the game started. And they did it very briefly and without ceremony before the game began. And the people who were there, the Dodgers fans who were there, booed when this was done. I'm glad. And, you know, I know a lot of people say, hey, no one should have showed up to the game. But I appreciate that those who did were honest, that many who did were honest. And I appreciate that Dodgers, uh, although they, again, I think they were wrong. They were wrong on this. Who who honors a group that does scandalous, scandalous, uh, vulgar things in front of children that children should never see? pretending to be priests and as I mean I'm just gonna stop there I've seen this group and they've been in my face before when I was 13 years old it was so inappropriate Uh, but here's the deal I think that this is a win because we saw here's what happened thousands upon thousands of people were outside of Dodger Stadium processing with the Eucharist outside of Dodger Stadium and They were honoring God in the face of such a dishonor toward our faith and toward God. So praise God that this was done. It was nothing but joyful, incredible police escort by the Los Angeles Police Department. They're honoring uh, our faith. They're honoring the people who said, no, we're going to take a stand and pray outside the stadium in reparation for this heinous act. And again, worst game that Dodgers has had in well over 100 years. They scored zero. Why? Because I think the morale of even those players, and I imagine some of them disagreed. I imagine many of them disagreed with this. I think the morale was low for them because they weren't just disgusted with the fact that people were boycotting the game. They were disgusted with what was happening. 
And baseball is very much so a mental game. And their heads were not in the game because when you abandon what is holy, what is true, what is beautiful, what is honorable toward others, you're in a bad space. And I think many were probably convicted for not having spoken up as well. So we'll see how things play out in the future for Dodgers, if fans leave, if they stay. Uh, But I want to talk to you about something else here, and that is Kaiser Permanente. I was a patient of Kaiser Permanente for many years. I am very glad I am not in many anymore. They're very popular in California. I don't know if they're in other states. Maybe they are. But I know they're very popular in California as like the one-stop shop for everything medical. And here's the deal. I share with you the story of a young woman named Chloe Cole about a month ago here on the show. We're going to link to her story. She was a teenager. At the age of 11, she got a cell phone, and she was influenced especially by Snapchat, TikTok, and Instagram to transition when she was struggling with her transition in life of being a female, or of being a female. She was struggling, and they ushered her into a male identity And she went through cross-sex hormones, all these different things, horrible things. She's in the middle of a lawsuit against three physicians in particular and against Kaiser for literally engaging in bodily mutilation. Well, guess what? She's not the only one. Now there's another lawsuit that has come forward. And this is significant. This is a story of a 12-year-old girl who at the age of 12 started taking puberty blockers. It's absolutely heartbreaking. Her name's Layla. 12 years old, she starts taking puberty doctor blockers under the guidance of physicians at Kaiser after one meeting. They start giving her testosterone. By the age of 13, she had already had a double mastectomy. Years later, at the age of 17 now, she has transitioned back into her God-given identity and is dealing with the aftermath. There's a massive lawsuit occurring right now against Kaiser. Another one. There are three young women who are calling out Kaiser and especially three doctors in particular who are involved in, by the way, all of these situations of these girls who are being transitioned. And the suit addresses a number of things. But here's an important line from the suit. It says, there's no other area of medicine where doctors will surgically remove a perfectly healthy body part and intentionally induce a diseased state of pituitary gland misfunction based simply on the young adolescent patient's wishes. Did you get that? There's no type of surgical procedure or medicine other than with regard to gender, so-called gender, where a healthy body part is removed, treated as if it's a disease, and causes, because this is what a cross-sex surgery does, There's no such thing as a cross-sex surgery. It's bodily mutilation. It leads to leaving a body part in a diseased state. The pituitary gland is literally, literally in a place of misfunction. And why is this done? Because an adolescent under the guidance of adults was told to do so when this child was struggling with his or her identity. What human being doesn't struggle with identity? And in a culture where it says, you should question whether or not you're a boy or a girl. And you're nothing. How dare medical professionals do this? Thank God there are lawsuits. It brings me hope in California, especially as my home state of California is currently trying to legalize it so that parents can lose their children if they don't agree with a child who wants to go through with a transition. Literally, a child protective services could take away their ch- your child. And they're trying to claim that, oh, no, this is just in the cases of where 
Oh, maybe a child's being placed for adoption or maybe a child's being placed in the foster system. No, this is actually the language is vague on purpose so that people can have their children taken away and they believe in the God-given identity of male and female. So we need to stand up. We need to speak up. There are lawsuits. This thing is going to fall down hard. We just have to stay persistent and tell the truth. Truth is on our side. The God-given identity is on our side. But as I talked to Emily Simpson Chapman at the beginning of the show, I thought it was so relevant. We're talking about an eating disorder. But at the end of the day, it was a search for meaning, purpose, value, self-esteem. Today's eating disorder is gender dysphoria. It's not gender dysphoria. It's a self-esteem crisis where the culture is saying it's gender dysphoria. Maybe you should consider being a boy if you're a girl, and maybe you should be consider being a girl if you're a boy. It's all a lie. And here's one really important point that I want to highlight. In both of these lawsuits, the parents did not know what to do when their children came to them, when their daughters, their In this case, a 12-year-old and 11-year-old daughter came to them and said, I think that I'm a boy. They turned to medical professionals. But who should we turn to? Yes, medicine is important. But if we're turning to professionals who do not have the God-given blueprint and identity of the human person fused into them as their understanding and the way of the world, the way to practice medicine, the way to take sound science, sound medicine, sound psychology, then it is a disservice. As a parent, if you are facing a crisis, if you are facing a crisis within your marriage, we handled a question about that earlier. Yes, great. Turn to professionals, but turn to God first, turn to God during, and turn to God after as the answer and the guiding the guiding driver behind what type of solution there needs to be i said this earlier and i will say it again when we try to create a solution we're living in a culture today where we try to create the solution rather than find the solution in god and the blueprint for the human person so when we try to create a solution today we try to become the creator we are erasing god and when we erase the creator we lead to greater dysfunction, not healing. And parents are being bullied, being told that your child will uh, commit suicide if you don't transition them. That's not the case. We're seeing suicidal tendencies after transition. It's not helping. It doesn't uh, decrease the suicidal ideation at all. And we're also not seeing follow-up with true medical data on this. We're having to look at data overseas on this that is pointing to suicidality after transition and no decrease in suicide. There are tons of studies, even secular studies, not not Christian-based. It's also important to recognize that these parents, as it's indicated in this lawsuit, were not properly consent. They did not properly consent to the risks and the damage done by puberty blockers and testosterone for an 11-year-old child. I think that's very important that we recognize. Again, I'll say it. We can't seek solutions. When we try to create a solution ourselves, we try to become the creator. We try to become God, and we lead to greater dysfunction. We can talk about these things with great hope and joy because we have Jesus Christ, who is the role model, who is the solution, who is the hope and joy that is within us. And Jesus Christ is the light in the darkness, and we need to let him shine and not be afraid. As I talked about yesterday here on Trending with Jim Caviezel, to let the light shine in the darkness and to tell the truth and to be willing to die with Christ for that truth. 
This is Timory from Trending with Timory. Wednesday on Trending, we're going to talk about St. Joseph, how he is, as we read in the Litany to St. Joseph, the pillar of family life. Family at the end of the day is what everything comes down to. How a family is the leader of their faith within, how the father and the mother lead, protect, and nourish their family in Christ. So we'll talk about that Wednesday. Join me daily, 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.